This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease from the pediatric section on orthobullets.com. Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease, also known as perineal muscular atrophy, is a hereditary motor sensory neuropathy that results in muscle weakness and sensory changes. Orthopedic manifestations include progressive distal muscle wasting slash weakness, especially in the perineal muscles, areflexia, hammer toes, hip dysplasia, scoliosis, hand muscle atrophy and weakness, as well as pes cavovarus foot deformities. Charcot-Marie tooth disease is the most common inherited progressive peripheral neuropathy with an incidence of 1 in 2,500 individuals. As far as the pathophysiology, there are seven types of Charcot-Marie tooth disease and an X-linked category. However, we will only be talking about type 1 and type 2 hereditary sensory motor neuropathies. Type 1 has an autosomal dominant inheritance and is characterized by an abnormal myelin sheath protein that is the basis of this degenerative neuropathy, which results in a combination of motor and sensory disturbances. The motor involvement tends to be more profound than the sensory. This type most commonly leads to cavus foot, and the onset of type 1 occurs in the first or second decades of life, and these patients generally have a normal life expectancy. Type 2 has an intact myelin sheath with Wallerian axonal degeneration, not demyelination, that results in mild sensory and motor conduction velocities. And usually type 2 patients are less disabled than type 1 patients. The onset occurs in the second decade of life or later, and most commonly leads to a flaccid foot. All forms of the disease manifest as distal weakness, primarily in the foot and ankle. Somewhat later in life, the hand may be affected as well. Perineal involvement is typically first and most profound. Basically, the perineus brevis becomes weak, and this results in muscle imbalance and varus deformity. Weakness of the tibialis anterior results in a dropped foot, and intrinsic muscles of the hand and foot can also be affected. Most patients usually present toward the end of the first decade with progressive cavovarus deformities of the feet associated with dorsiflexion of the toes during the swing phase of gait and contracture of the plantar fascia. There are 30 genes that now have been described in association with the different forms of Charcot-Marie tooth disease. 70% of patients show a duplication of the peripheral myelin protein 22, or PMP22 gene, on chromosome 17. Charcot-Marie tooth is most commonly regarded as an autosomal dominant duplication of chromosome 17, which again codes for peripheral myelin protein 22, expressed in Schwann cells. However, it is also thought the inheritance may also less commonly be autosomal recessive or even X-linked. Symptoms of Charcot-Marie tooth disease can be divided into motor deficits, sensory deficits, and lateral foot pain. With respect to motor deficits, initial symptoms are distal weakness and atrophy of the distal muscles, instability during gait, clumsiness, frequent ankle sprains, and difficulty climbing stairs. Sensory deficits are more or less variable. Lateral foot pain is typically the result of the cavovarus foot deformity. The initial deforming force in this deformity is the result of a weak anterior tibialis being overpowered by the unaffected peroneus longus, which brings the first ray into a plantar flex position, and this forces the hind foot into a varus position, leading to lateral column overload and pain. 
The cavus deformity is caused by the peroneus longus overpowering the weak tibialis anterior as well as weak intrinsics of a contracted plantar fascia. The weakened tibialis anterior can also lead to a foot drop deformity and compound the gait difficulties. The varus deformity in a cavovarus foot is caused by the tibialis posterior overpowering a weak peroneus brevis. The physical exam for patients with Charcot-Marie tooth can be divided into lower extremity, upper extremity, and the spine. The lower extremity exam should focus on the examination of the cavovarus foot if present, evaluation of the motor weakness, and assessment for the presence or absence of reflexes. The cavovarus foot in Charcot-Marie tooth disease is similar to that in Friedrich's ataxia, with hammer toes or clawing of the toes, and it is usually bilateral and symmetric. And again, this occurs due to the unopposed pull of the peroneus longus, which causes plantar flexion of the first ray and compensatory hind foot varus. Initially, this is flexible, but often it progresses to a rigid deformity. The Coleman block test is an important part of the lower extremity exam as it is a test to determine if the hind foot varus deformity is secondary to a plantar flexed first ray versus an independent component. If the deformity corrects with a Coleman block, this suggests a forefoot driven varus deformity. And if the deformity does not correct with a Coleman block, this suggests a hind foot driven varus deformity. And it's important to remember that a rigid hind foot will not correct into neutral. Manifestations of motor weakness in the lower extremity include perineal weakness, and these will be the weakest muscles around the foot and ankle. The tibialis anterior weakens next, but is typically stronger than the perineals. The tibant weakness can lead to foot drop in the swing phase initially, and may later progress to a fixed equinus. The posterior tibialis stays strong for a prolonged period of time. Calf atrophy is rarely significant if it's present. Claw toes may also be noted. And finally, weak intrinsics may be apparent, which would include weak EDB and EHB. The upper extremity exam will typically show intrinsic wasting of hands and a weak pinch and grasp. And scoliosis may be evident on Adam's forward bending test on the spine exam. Apart from genetic testing, which we discussed, another study useful in diagnosing this condition is an EMG. Low nerve conduction velocities with prolonged distal latencies are noted in the perineal, ulnar, and median nerves. You can also see low amplitude nerve potentials due to axonal loss, and nerve pathology can show simultaneous demyelinization and remyelinization. Treatments of a cavovarus foot can be divided into non-operative and operative options. The non-operative options include accommodative shoe wear, a full-length semi-rigid insole orthotic with a depression for the first ray and a lateral wedge, a supramalleolar orthosis or an SMO, an ankle foot orthosis or an AFO, or lace-up ankle brace and or high-top shoes or boots. We will go into the indications for each of these options. Accommodative shoe wear is rarely sufficient except in cases of mild deformity. A full-length semi-rigid insole orthotic with a depression for the first ray and a lateral wedge is indicated for mild cavus foot deformities in an adult. It is not indicated in children. A supramalleolar orthosis or an SMO is indicated for more severe cavovarus deformities that are recalcitrant to shoe wear accommodations. An ankle foot orthosis or AFO is indicated when equinus is also present, resulting in an equino-cavovarus foot deformity. 
This, of course, works best if Aquinas is a dynamic deformity and not a rigid deformity. And finally, lace-up ankle braces and or high-top shoes or boots are indicated in moderate deformities when patients don't tolerate the more rigid bracing with an SMO or an AFO. Minoli et al. described the best orthotic for a correctable deformity to be a semi-rigid orthotic with a recess for the head of the plantar flex first ray and lateral hind foot posting to correct the heel varus. Approximately 75% of patients have improved stability and pain relief with this type of orthosis. A rigid orthosis molded to the cavus usually exacerbates symptoms. Genies et al. reviewed the four classes of orthotics. Number one, accommodative, which cushions and protects the foot. Two, the semi-rigid, which cushions and protects as well as provides support, control, and weight redistribution. Three, rigid, which offers arch support. And four, partial foot prostheses, which addresses partial amputations and helps protect the foot. The operative options to treat a cavovarus deformity include a soft tissue reconstruction, first metatarsal dorsiflexion osteotomy, and a triple arthrodesis, lateral calcaneal slide, or closed-wedged osteotomy. We will go into the indications for each of these. A soft tissue reconstruction is indicated for a flexible deformity in adolescents with closed physes that have failed conservative management of fixed deformities. A soft tissue reconstruction is performed with a combination of the following procedures. A plantar release, peroneus longus to brevis transfer, posterior tibial tendon transfer, lengthening of the gastrocnemius, also known as a tendo-Achilles lengthening, and or a Jones transfer or transfers of the EHL to the neck of the first metatarsal and lesser toe extensors to the neck of the second to fifth metatarsals. We will go into the indications for each of these as well. A plantar release, that is plantar fascia, plus or minus a Steindler stripping, which involves release of the short flexors off the calcaneus, is indicated for a cavus deformity. Peroneus longus to brevis transfers are indicated for a plantar flexed first ray, with the rationale being decreasing the plantar flexion force on the first ray without weakening eversion. Posterior tibial tendon transfers are indicated for muscle imbalances, as posterior tibialis is typically markedly stronger than everters and maintains strength for a long time in most cavovarus feet. Posterior tibial tendon transfers are indicated for muscle imbalances, since the posterior tibialis typically is markedly stronger than everters and maintains strength for a long time in most cavovarus feet. You can consider transfer of posterior tibialis to the dorsum of the foot if there is severe dorsiflexion weakness of the anterior tibialis. Lengthening of gastrocnemius or tendo-Achilles is indicated for true ankle equinus. As far as the outcomes, gastrocnemius recession produces less calf weakness and can be combined with plantar release simultaneously. However, tendo-Achilles lengthening should be staged several weeks after a plantar release. And finally, a Jones transfer or transfers of the EHL to the neck of the first metatarsal and lesser toe extensors to the second to fifth metatarsal necks is indicated for toe clawing combined with a cavus foot. It is performed if the indication is met and time permits. As we have discussed, ankle dorsiflexion weakness may result in the recruitment of toe extensors for assistance. And in the setting of intrinsic muscle weakness, increased toe extensor activity can lead to claw toe deformity, which becomes rigid over time. 
Therefore, the Jones procedure is indicated for symptomatic claw-toe deformity, which has failed non-operative measures. The goal of transferring the extensor tendons to the great and lesser toes of the metatarsal necks is to increase contributions to ankle dorsiflexion and decrease clawing in order to relieve pain on the dorsum of the toes and the plantar aspect of the metatarsal heads. A first metatarsal dorsiflexion osteotomy is indicated for flexible hindfoot cavus deformities, that is, in patients with a normal Coleman block test and or passive hindfoot eversion past neutral. And finally, a triple arthrodesis, lateral calcaneal slide, or closed wedge osteotomy is indicated for those patients whose deformity does not correct with a Coleman block test. Let's consider the case of an 18-year-old male presenting with recurrent ankle sprains of the left ankle and painful callus underneath the fifth metatarsal. During Coleman block testing, the hind foot is positioned in 3 degrees of valgus. The peroneus brevis and anterior tibialis have 4 out of 5 strength compared to 5 out of 5 strength in the peroneus longus, gastroxoleus complex, and posterior tibialis. Using a semi-rigid orthotic with a recess for the head of the first ray and lateral hind foot posting has failed to improve the patient's symptoms. This patient has a varus hind foot and a cavus midfoot, and the clinical exam is highlighted by a relatively strong peroneus longus and posterior tibialis muscles, which overpower the relatively weak peroneus brevis and anterior tibialis muscles. This imbalance results in hind foot varus and forefoot pronation and treatment is directed by determining the flexibility of the deformity, and the Coleman lateral block test is used to assess the hind foot flexibility of the cavovarus foot, as we have previously discussed. A supple hind foot will correct to neutral or in slight valgus when the block is placed under the lateral hind foot, which is what happens in the case presented. Correction of the hind foot varus position implies the hind foot deformity is not fixed and the forefoot is the primary deformity. Thus, the calcaneus in this case is spared from an osteotomy, like a Dwyer lateral closing wedge osteotomy during surgical correction. A dorsiflexion osteotomy of the first metatarsal and plantar fascia release will help correct the cavus deformity as well as allow restoration of the tripod foot alignment. Finally, the supple hind foot will passively correct from the varus position into a neutral position after this procedure. In a 2008 JBJS article, Ward et al. shows improved outcomes in the treatment of flexible cavovarus foot deformities with soft tissue and osteotomy procedures compared to a triple arthrodesis at an average of 26 years postoperatively. Paulos et al. studied over 20 patients with Charcot-Marie tooth disease who underwent plantar tissue releases and tendon transfers. With at least two-year follow-up, 85% of patients were found to have acceptable results. Fortin et al. reviewed 13 feet in 10 patients with subtle cavovarus deformity. They found an association between pes cavus and chronic lateral ankle instability with subsequent development of medial ankle arthritis. They stated that these findings may represent the natural history of long-standing, untreated cavovarus foot deformities. Another orthopedic manifestation sometimes associated with Charcot-Marie tooth disease is hip dysplasia, but this is found in typically less than 10% of patients. It may present during adolescence in ambulatory patients, and treatment for symptomatic hip dysplasia is a pelvic osteotomy, which we will discuss in more detail in another episode. One thing to keep in mind, however, is that there is a higher rate of sciatic nerve palsy after this type of surgery for these patients.
Finally, scoliosis can be seen in children with Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease in approximately 10 to 20% of cases. A characteristic left thoracic and kyphotic curve distinguishes it from an idiopathic scoliosis. Non-operative treatment in the form of bracing is rarely effective, so it is not typically used. Operative intervention typically involves fusion and instrumentation, which is indicated in cases of progressive deformity with scoliosis greater than 50 degrees. That's all for this review about Charcot-Marie tooth disease. Hopefully that was helpful. Look out for questions related to this topic on this weekend's question session, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that review. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.